0: Hey everyone, I'm Chris Hall and you're listening to the Downtime Podcast, where we delve deep into the gravity-based side of mountain biking. First up, I want to thank our supporting partners who make this podcast possible, and today that's Leia and Magura. Over the last few months, I've been using some of Leia's most recent collection of clothing and I've been really impressed. For me, there have been a few standout items and today I want to tell you about their entry-level jacket that's become a standard go-to in my riding pack. The Trail 1.0 jacket is super small and lightweight and is the perfect jacket to get you out of trouble. Stick it in your pack and forget about it until that unexpected shower hits or the weather turns and you're getting cold. It's made from a water and wind resistant fabric which isn't going to keep you dry all day but will definitely get you out of trouble. There's a stealth under the helmet hood and the cut is slim and comfortable so it doesn't flap about in the breeze. It's also a really quiet fabric to wear unlike some of the jackets out there. I've also been loving the Trail 1.0 jersey and the Trail 3.0 shorts which I'll tell you more about in future episodes. If you want to check out what Layout have to offer then you can see the entire range over at Layout.com. that's L-E-A-D-T.com and get hold of them at your local bike shop or online. I've been using the Magura MT7 Pro brakes since late last year and I recently posted that they were the best brakes I've ever used. A couple of people got in touch to ask if that was really the case and my honest answer is yes they are. The power is insane but it's totally controllable and they're the only brakes that I've ever been able to keep working just as well as when I first fitted them. Pad life has been excellent and I found them super easy to bleed too. Since fitting them I've never had to worry about being able to slow down. What's more, Magura have their Customize Your Brake program, which allows you to get the brakes set up perfectly for you, as you can change the brake lever, the pads, the discs, and make some aesthetic changes too. I found that the perfect setup for me is the standard performance pads and the HC Wide Reach Lever, which was designed for Loic Bruni, but works really well for my hands too. You can check out the entire range of Magura brakes and the Customize Your Brake program over at magura.com. While you're here, don't forget to subscribe or follow the podcast so that you never miss an episode. There's buttons to help you get that done over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash subscribe. Merch is available if you want to support the show. That's over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop. And the second issue of our print project, Downtime EP, is now available. It's packed full full of great writing and amazing photography from mountain biking's best. And it takes some of the topics and guests from the podcast and takes them into something beautiful to read and to cherish. You can get your copy or an annual subscription over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash EP. All the links you need for all of this stuff are in the show notes for this episode over on downtimepodcast.com. You can also get in touch and give us a follow on Instagram and Facebook by heading to at downtimepodcast. Sports psychology is openly used at the elite levels of our sport but it's not just the top athletes that can benefit from having a better working relationship with their minds. Us regular riders stand to benefit too and today I'm joined by Dr Chris Hartley who's a lecturer in sports psychology at the University of Stirling along with being a passionate mountain biker with a love for enduro and downhill. We sat down to discuss the five most common mental challenges that we find out on the trails, encountering our weak points, dealing with negative mindset, fear of the unknown, pushing our comfort zones and dealing with crashes and injury. Chris ran this as an open discussion with me on my experiences and he offered advice and techniques along the way. It's definitely given me lots to think about and apply on the trail and I hope it helps you too. So without further ado, here's Chris Hartley. Chris Hartley, welcome to the downtime podcast. It's uh, it's good to have you on.
1: Yeah, thank you, Chris. I'm a, I'm excited to be here, and I've been i I've been a, a long time listener, and yeah, I was I was pretty keen to come on, so yeah, excited to be here.
0: Nice one. Yeah, we haven't uh, we haven't done anything on the sports sort of psychology side, uh, I guess at the kind of professional academic level for a while. So it's gonna be really interesting to get into this, and definitely a, an area that I have a personal interest in as well. Before we get stuck into Kind of the bulk of the session itself. Just give us a brief background on you, um, both from kind of the mountain biking side of life, and also from your like professional and academic Mm -hmm. side.
1: Sure. Well, um, they both lead into each other. I would say it was very much the mountain biking that led me into the career of sports psychology. And um, I was actually at a sports psychology conference yesterday, and 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 was lift sharing with some people. So I got I got to recount this story and. I've been told it's quite a good story of how I got into mountain biking because it involves <laughs> it involves Black Sabbath and and things like that. So um, the abridged nice. version is basically when I was um, a teenager uh, living in the Highlands of Scotland, I uh, I got one of the last remaining tickets uh, in my high school to go to like a local battle of the bands competition, and uh, at this battle of the bands there was a like a raffle prize as part of the like supplementary activities that were taking place there and uh i really wanted the electric guitar that was like the second place prize <laughs> but i didn't get that and then for the the first prize it was a mountain bike and uh for some bizarre reason this was a, a high school in the highlands of scotland up near Galsby. i don't know if you've if you've ridden up there before but um
0: uh-huh.
1: for the for the final grand prize drawing they got the keyboardist from black sabbath I don't know how but like he, he came out on stage to to read the the winning the winning prize draw and um yeah he read my name so I ended up winning this um giant Yukon which was like I think a you know sort of mid-range Halfords hard like hardtail and um it stood it actually stood um unused in my garage for quite a long time and uh, eventually uh, I then a few years later had a an MSN argument with a friend from school. I was kind of asking, asking him, you know, what are you up to? And he he said, I'm shopping for forks. And, uh, you know, I was at this time, I was a bit like, you mean, do you mean kitchen forks? And he's like, no, no, the, the suspension on the front of a mountain bike. And um, I asked him how much he was looking to spend. And he said a few hundred pounds. And I, I thought this was a joke. It was a bit, um, you know, there was no need for it. <laughs> And, uh, he then said, well, no, I do downhill mountain biking and, uh, I was still not convinced. So he, he then suggested I come with him that weekend to, um, to go and, and see what it was all about. So, uh, I met up with him at Galsby and, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't quite, he didn't, he didn't take me to a full on downhill track to start with, but I was there with this, you know, very much entry-level mountain bike. And we went right to the top of Galsby and, um, it's pretty rocky. Up there, and you know, I, I'd never really ridden a mountain bike before, so I think I got about a hundred meters in after pushing for about two hours to get to the top, and I, I got a flat. And we, of <laughs> course, you, you know, young teenagers, we didn't have spare tubes with us or anything, so ended up pushing all the way back down. But I had the privilege <laughs> of on the way back down, walking past the red trail, and I saw this beautiful, huge left-hand bank bank berm. And I thought, you know, that looks cool. I really want to ride that. So we got the the wheel repaired and then went just just pushed up like halfway to so that I could ride that one red trail. And yeah, so as soon as I hit that that left hander, the rest was history. I was absolutely hooked. So got a full <laughs> face and then got a cone stinky a few weeks thereafter and just really threw myself into it. Um so yeah, that was I think up to that point I was always kind of I was interested in like a career in medicine or something like that. But then suddenly I was just all about bikes, absolutely obsessed. And, um, I went to university and joined, uh, Edinburgh uni cycling club. I was a bit torn between which university to go to. And, uh, I saw that Edinburgh uni seemed to have quite a good cycling club and they were much closer to the borders, trail, the borders, the trails and the borders. So I, I was quite keen to go there. And, um, it was in my first year there that I, I was studying psychology. Um, that was the subject I was interested in. And you had the option in your first year of taking some outside subjects. And uh, I saw there was a sports science module I could take. And then there was only like a two-week block, um, Chris, in this sports science module where we learned about sports psychology. And as soon as soon as soon as I started learning about the sports psychology stuff, I was like, wow, this is, this is really cool. And up to that point, I had, I had always found the mental side of mountain biking really interesting because, you know, inevitably when you first start mountain biking, you're, you're trying to develop and judge your relationship with risk and how far you can push yourself. And then of course you crash and you get hurt and you then have to try and get over that whole mental side of it as well. Like trying to, overcome fear and push your boundaries and knowing how to manage that. And so, you know, when I discovered the sports psychology stuff, I was like, wow, this is, this is really relevant to mountain biking. And, um, yeah, I think those two experiences combined, I did a bunch of racing, not to any high level, really at any point, but I, I did, I did race in mountain biking quite a lot. And then I also branched out into lots of different disciplines of cycling. Um, but yeah, then eventually, um, When I graduated, I then went on to do a a master's degree in sport psychology at the University of Stirling. And um, that then turned into a Ph.D. uh, in sports psychology where I was looking at um, what is the what is the best way to support high performing athletes, holistically speaking. And so, you know, that they're they're well looked after as people as well as performers um, but then yeah. alongside that, I was also pursuing uh, my professional registration as a, as a practitioner psychologist. So um, that basically means you do two to th- two to three years of applied practice with athletes, teams, organizations, uh, working on sports psychology, which is a very diverse field doing lots of different things. And um, yeah, so then uh, I got my professional registration and here I am now. I, I work as a as a sport and exercise psychologist with athletes from a range of different levels, and um, uh, I'm also a lecturer in sports psychology at the University of Stirling. So, bit of a, a bit of a long backstory there, Chris. But uh, the mountain biking really did. If it wasn't for mountain biking, I wouldn't be in
0: my career that I am in today. Oh, that's awesome, man. It's it's cool to see that that mountain biking's kind of driven your career path as well. It's really. Really cool to hear. And I guess a lot of people kind of see sports psychology as something that is, you know, exclusively for these elite level athletes that are searching for tenths or even hundreds of a second and every kind of marginal gain they can create is worth having. And I think everyone's seen the power of sports psychology in there. Cause you can, you can definitely tell when riders are kind of clicking on that side of things and the consistency comes and the results hmm. come with it. But in reality it's a powerful um topic for all of us to look at right it's not just for people at the top end of the sport everyone can benefit
1: yeah and you know I, I think that whole narrative of like it's it's only reserved for the the sports people at the top when they're trying to search for their marginal gains and all that sort of thing i think that was really is driven by that narrative from the the early 2000s when you know brit i think british cycling and there's The Chimp Paradox by Steve Peters, which book, you know, there's a book that people might be familiar with. You know, they kind of really promoted this philosophy of marginal gains. And I, th- I think particularly in like, you know, UK mountain biking, cycling, that, that philosophy really was kind of embraced and understood by like the media and the sports. So, yeah, I think. People do have it in their heads that it's oh it's maybe just that one percent that thing that will distinguish the the top performing athletes from one another. But uh, you know, as we'll hopefully talk about today, Chris, there are loads of common scenarios that we all encounter in in our sport of mountain biking, which fundamentally comes down to your personal experience of it, your mindset, your your relationship with different challenging parts of the sport. I mean, I know, I know we're going to go through these examples later, but things like, you know, w- what is your relationship with your weak points when it comes to mountain biking? And for some people it's jumps, that's that's a fairly common one. Y- you know, most of us, I think, don't don't take that moment to think, well, I don't ride a lot of jumps because, you know, I, I, I see myself as not being very good at them, it's my weak point. And actually that's 100% psychology. There's not, you know, you, you could say it comes down to skill, yes, but you're not going to have the motivation to go and practice that skill if you don't examine your relationship with with jumping or the fear that you get from jumping. And similarly, you know, how you respond versus react to mistakes, those things are highly relevant to the to everyday rides. You know, I don't, I don't think any of us go out for a ride and, you know, you, we make mistakes all the time when we're out on the trail. So um, these things are highly relevant. I... I would say that it's it's relevant to any rider in terms of wanting to perform better, address their performance gaps. Um, doesn't matter what level you're at, you can always change your relationship with with risk and learn how to push your comfort your comfort zone and progress simply by taking a, a careful look at your mindset, how you approach your sport and 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 risk, mm-hmm. and then similarly. Um, just to get more out of the experience of mountain biking at the end of the day, you know, we all, we all do it because, because we love it, because we get more out of it than just, you know, adrenaline. Um, there's a social side to it. Um, and sometimes we have good days and we have bad days. So actually trying to understand what are those ingredients that lead to having more good days on the bike versus bad days on the bike. I think, you know, that stuff is, that, that's, that stuff is very important so that we can get what we want out of our sports. So it's a bit of a long winded answer there, Chris, but, um, that's my view. I suppose the way I would normally ask that question, actually, I would throw it right back at you. And I would ask, you know, what, what percentage of your own mountain biking do
0: you think is mental? Oh, a huge percentage for sure. Uh, I, I, I can turn my ability to ride a bike on and off with my head. No doubt. Like mm. if things aren't going well, I can very quickly get into sort of a downward spiral, um, and and ruin a day on the bike. And I've got a lot better at that over the years for various reasons, I guess. Um, but for sure. Yeah. Massively, hugely. And it's not, it's, it's not just performance. Like you say, it's enjoyment as well. Cause when that downward spiral happens, Mm. the enjoyment kind of drains from the the ride as well as the, the ability to ride trails well. So yeah, Yeah. I'm super keen to get into it. And I think we we've said, we're basically going to try and run this as a bit of a, sports psychology session with me as the (laughs) client i suppose Uh, but also to try and provide broader context as well so that hopefully everyone listening gets something from the session and it's not just uh my woes and and struggles out there um so yeah we talked we talked a bit before about approaching it that way i think it's a really good way to go at it and i think the first thing i guess to talk about and you've already mentioned to some extent is encountering things out there that Mm maybe we aren't so good at or we're, we have a bit of fear for. So yeah, I'll, let, I'll hand over to you and kind of let you dig and delve and ask yeah. questions and offer support and advice in whatever way is, <laughs> okay. is best. Sounds good. Yeah.
1: And I, I suppose I just wanted to quickly pick up on that one point you, you mentioned earlier, Chris around, you know, you, you said that actually the mental part of your own writing is very, is very big. It's huge. And honestly, I, you know, you, you can ask, any rider that and they'll they'll give that response but how many of us actually do take the time to try and understand our own mental relationship with mountain biking I'd say very few of us um I you know I I actually have a lot of friends who I ride with who you know they they say oh it's my head that gets in the way of me doing this and I'm like well why don't you examine that why don't you actually just try and optimize (laughs) that and and try and you know get your your mindset your mental approach to this particular you know feature or task or thing that you struggle with with mountain biking um it doesn't have to take particularly long it's not it's not a deep dive psychoanalytic process it's something that you can actually get to grips with uh, in a short space of time so i i think people recognize the importance of it but they don't necessarily put the effort in to actually address it even though it can actually be quite um a rewarding experience um so yeah let's uh let's go on to these these questions chris right so the way that we we thought we would do this chris uh we kind of thought we would talk about the five most common mental challenges that we might encounter on the trail and um i kind of i kind of got the idea for going through these five areas based on uh, some questions I asked some, some riding friends of mine. And these are people who are, you know, they're recreational riders and they go all the way up to EWS racers as well. So I kind of tried to pull together these five topics. And we thought we would talk about encountering our weak points on the trail, dealing with our mindset in terms of having a good day versus a bad day on the bike, uh, dealing with the fear of the unknown, getting hurt, pushing our comfort zones, and then dealing with mistakes. Uh, crashes and injury that sort of thing so um, let's start with the first one then Chris encountering our weak points so um, I suppose I'm I'm quite keen to hear about your experience of what do you see as being your own weak points when you're out on a ride because like we've already alluded to some people have these have these stories they kind of tell themselves and they reinforce the idea that I'm just no good at jumps and that's just something that I'm not good at you know and i'm interested in in why we get stuck with these weak points in our riding so you know if you could reflect on on your own weak points when it comes to your riding what what would you say that those are and what's your relationship with it
0: so i guess for me it's probably i guess the two the two biggest things that will put a fear into me out on the trails would be a jump where there's a gap so if it's uh if it's a jump that's kind of rollable or caseable i generally don't feel too bad about that but as soon as there's a gap i'll i'll start to freak out and worry about it even if it's you know a tiny feature there's something about the fact that there is a gap there that is a is a real mental block i guess for me i've used the keyword there haven't i um and then drops as well um drops Mm -hmm. I've, i've definitely improved on but anything again that isn't kind of a rollable feature like if I go and ride a new trail with someone for the first time, the the one question that, that I'll generally ask them is: Is there anything on this trail that I can't roll? So I guess that shows what I'm what I'm afraid well not maybe not afraid of, but what I'm concerned about. Mm. And I think those are
1: you know very I suppose common sticking points for people. And they're also quite sensible, actually, if you think about it, because they are the ones that are of higher cost. But I suppose the, the common thing I'm picking up there, Chris, is that you know they are the, the features that, are, that have a low degree of forgiveness. So if you make an error, there's yeah. going to be some kind of cost to it usually. Whereas, like you said, if you hit a table or it's a drop that you can roll, if you make a mistake or don't commit quite fully to the feature, it's not generally going to result in a, in a high cost to yourself. And, um, I suppose I'm just curious then how did that come about this, this relationship with what you perceive to be the weak points? Was that because you've had like previous instances, uh, perhaps when you like, and maybe your more formative writing years where you had bad experiences with these features. I think most of us have had that, to be honest.
0: Yeah. Oh, I, I broke my femur on a large drop, um, when I was 18, mm. Uh, which is a long time ago now but you know still got the the metal work in my leg and the i guess the physical damage and mental damage that comes with that so i think that's definitely something that has freaked yeah. me out there because up until that point i'd never had what i would consider a serious riding injury i'd like i'd not even broken a collarbone you know just cuts and bruises and stuff so i'd got off pretty lightly until then so i think that was a real Realisation that mountain biking can mm. properly hurt, um, and then jumps with gaps. Mm. I don't really know where that's come from. I've, I don't recollect. I mean, I've had crashes on jumps with gaps, but I don't th- think, I don't. I wasn't comfortable on them before that happened. If that makes sense, I think it's just always been there. There's something about the fact that there's a piece of ground that's missing that I have to get past. It is I find that a challenge in my head for some reason. I can't pinpoint like an event or a reason w- why that's the case.
1: What I heard you say basically is that, you know, you've had these historic moments where up until that point where you broke your femur, for example, you hadn't really had any big serious injuries. And then that came, um, you obviously had that experience and and on one of these features that you've described. So Kind of understandably, your, your mind has now associated those features with that, with that particular lesson uh, that, you, that your body has experienced. So um, I'm suppo- I suppose that uh, one thing that's interesting to talk about when it comes to risk in general is that, um, you know, I often like to talk about the brain as being a bit of a danger detector. So um, I don't know how much you know, you know about the layout of the brain, but you can kind of think of it as existing in, in sort of three layers. And uh, right at the the edge, you have the um, you know you have the part of the brain that deals with a lot of rational thinking. That's the part that's very human and it's very uh, logical. And you can kind of you know talk. Talk around things, explain them, and that's the sort of what we call executive functions that you need to use on a day-to-day basis for for your work and things like that. But then the deeper you go into the brain, the more primal and reptilian it gets. So underneath that, like thin layer uh, around the top of the brain, you've got the uh, you've got the limbic system, and that is basically responsible for dealing with a range of things around uh, emotion regulation and notably uh, danger detection so you might have heard of things like fight or flight response and that is primarily coming from that deeper part of the brain um beneath that still you've got the the reptilian brain which is responsible for regulating things like your heartbeat and your um uh, and your breathing and things like that but uh so basically, you have this this structure in the middle of the brain called the amygdala, the limbic system, and it's a very primitive part of the brain that's essentially evolved to do one thing, one job, which is to protect you from danger. And you could totally see how, you know, in historic environments, you know, when, when we were cavemen and having to, you know, avoid being eaten and things like that, then actually that having this um, very sensitive limbic system that responds to danger, um, it's quite useful, right? Um, if you've if you've encountered danger once before, going to a particular watering hole, and you find that there's a saber tooth tiger there, your limbic system will uh, evoke a very strong emotional hormonal reaction, and that will that memory will actually lodge itself in your brain very potently to protect you from being weary about situations like that in future so the same unfortunately applies to our normal day-to-day riding in the sense that our brains are fundamentally they haven't changed very much in in you know the last 100 200 years so when we go to work you know or we go to a, a social event or when we go mountain biking our brains fundamentally still operate in exactly the same way it's a it's a danger detector it's designed to keep us safe and it has a it has an overriding function compared to the rest of the brain right so that means you can try and rationalize to yourself as much as you like that, you know, I've done drops like this before a hundred times, I've hit jumps like this before, and I know I can do them. You will not manage to override that primitive emotional fear reaction because it it serves a very useful evolutionary purpose. Um I don't know if you can relate to any of that, Chris. Like have you have you kind of noticed how potent that kind of reaction can be when you encounter these like more scary features on the trail like how that how that kind of primitive fear reaction might kick in
0: for sure yeah it's it I can uh, even you talking about it now and me thinking about it I can feel I feel a bit edgy you know I can not not quite the sweaty palms kind of thing but like I can feel that the reality of that fear and I guess really an obvious example for me is at the bottom of the steel city race in Sheffield, there's a, like a drop into the finish bowl, which is quite similar to the drop that I broke my femur mm. on. Not quite as big. Um, and for me, when, when I raced mm. that, I don't know, five or six years ago, I knew that, you know, riding, rolling into it wasn't an option. You know, you had to be carrying race pace. So I did eventually work up to kind of jumping into it and following a friend mm. in to get the speed, right. And it was such a, buzz to to do it but still every time I rode that in practicing in the race I could feel that fear and now thinking about going back and mm. doing that again even though I know I've done it quite a few times it's still intimidating it still scares me and I would still very much think twice about whether to do it or not yeah
1: and we we, we call that uh, an amygdala hijack it's quite a common thing that you see in those scenarios so that's your your primitive brain doing its job. And it will actually, even though you are in control up to that point on the trail, you, you can't really stop that. It's just, that's just the way our brains have evolved. It will hijack our rational thinking with emotions and it will try to get us to just grab those brake levers a little bit to tense up and to lean back a bit more perhaps. Cause you know, that's the, you see that in skiing as well, don't you? That if you're scared, your your natural reaction is to want to lean back, get away from the danger. And you know, we, we know in Mm -hmm. mountain biking that actually that that can ironically make things worse sometimes because if you're going over a steep drop or something and you're leaning way too far back, you'll actually, you know, you might even get pulled over the front of the bike if the front drops away or something like that. So, um, you know, and, and this is where we kind of y- y- you get into things like pedest- people talk about like pedestrian mentality when you start to you start to listen to that amygdala hijack and you, and you just you start to react um, in the way that it wants you to by by riding more defensively and being um, essentially, you know, re- reacting to that fear in, in quite a primitive way. So I suppose, Chris, what I'd be interested in asking, um, you know, I should, you know, we we all experience this, this amygdala hijack and we encounter our our kind of weak points on the, on the trail. We, our primitive fear brain kicks in. What do you see as being the, the short-term benefits of responding and listening to that amygdala that's just trying to do its job? What do you see as being the kind of short-term logical benefits of listening to your brain in those moments of danger?
0: Well, I guess if you don't ride those features, you, you're not going to get hurt, right? You're avoiding yeah. injury by doing that. Um, so I guess that's exactly. a short-term benefit of it, yeah.
1: Yeah, and that's fundamentally how our brains work. Our brains are hardwired to think in the present moment about, you know, am I going to get hurt now or not? That's the most important thing that is it's going to use to make its decision. So unfortunately, our brains are hardwired to think about these short-term benefits of like if i do this now i will avoid getting hurt so it's more important that you know i I disappoint chris hall and just get him to pull the brakes a little bit because that'll keep him safe what about if we think about then the long-term costs of doing that like if you if you're constantly giving into this amygdala hijack what do you see as being longer-term costs of that well there's i think
0: there's a few things there's certainly if you're in a race you're losing precious seconds for sure you're not progressing mm-hmm. in your riding in any way you're not enjoying that element of the trail in any way you're not you're not getting the adrenaline rush that you get from i guess overcoming one of these amygdala hijack events which is is a very present and awesome feeling to get um
1: there's mm-hmm. the
0: shame of it i suppose like if, if i'm totally honest sometimes <laughs> you feel um kind of yeah, it makes you feel bad. Like if everyone you're riding with is fine on stuff like that and you're not, it can be kind of horrible or embarrassing, um, way to feel. Um, and I've Mm, also, mm. you know, I've fallen down hills walking around obstacles like this that are probably much easier to ride, Mm, but for mm. some reason I've ended up getting off (laughs) yeah, and slipping over and sliding down hills (laughs) on my ass. (laughs) So yeah, there's, there's a number of downsides, I guess, to, to avoiding it. Yeah. And, you know, we could even extend that further
1: and ask, you know, longer term beyond that, if you make this a habit of, you know, weeks, months and years that every single time, you know, you encounter like a, a blind double or something like that, that you can't case and every single time you go around it, you know, you know, what, what do you see as being the kind of ultimate long term costs of that? If we're talking about years, you know, years of doing that, what are the costs?
0: well the, yeah the fear gets worse over time i think in in, mm. in my case because you're not doing anything to try and make it feel better um yeah be, be, i guess you just you're missing out on that experience right that is part of riding and it can be an enjoyable part of riding and you're missing out on it mm. some trails i mean there aren't always there isn't always a way around a jump or a drop So some trails, yeah, you can ride the trail and still Mm. kind of enjoy it Mm. without hitting all the features. And then certain trails you just can't, right? Without, without hitting everything.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's, in some ways that's, it's fundamentally a little bit sad and disappointing for us as riders, isn't it? If we can't get to that point where, you know, well, I want to ride this trail. I I've come all the way to Morzine and I want to ride this, this flowy jump line with my friends and there's this one jump that I can't do, so I can't join in on the train. I can't. Um, I can't get that sense of satisfaction, that feeling of competence. That actually, yes, I've done this. I've committed to, it, and I get the, the the you know the good feelings and sad, that, that comes with that. And you know, over a long yeah. period of time, it kind of feels like well, we're not actually getting the most out of our sport. We're not like getting you know that rewarding feeling that we that we want out of out of one of our main hobbies. You know, so. I suppose in the long term, it feels like we just don't, we don't get as much out of the sport as we would like. Um, but you mentioned a whole bunch of other things there, Chris, as well. You know, in a race, for example, the the consequences are that you end up going slower. You you don't get that, like we've already said, that enjoyment or that high from hitting that, that, uh, that drop and getting the downslope and feeling that like whoosh when you get the downslope really nice. And then fundamentally, some of the other longer term costs are, you know these kind of thoughts and feelings that accompany that um amygdala hijack like oh i'm i'm no good at these sort of things like y- y- you feel like a less able rider and um mm-hmm. i don't know about you but I, I see that in group rides quite a lot if you've got a large uh, ability gap in a group you'll have the faster riders you know hitting features and doing writing technical sections really fast and then you know, because that ability gap can be widened, you actually have the more reserved riders, you know, walking down sections or not hitting some features with other people watching them. And I don't know about you, but those people, I don't think they enjoy those, those moments because it makes them feel like they're, they're not very good at riding bikes. And, um, yeah, you know, so the point I'm trying to make here, Chris, is that, uh, even though the amygdala hijack was evolved to serve a good purpose and in the heat of the moment it is uh, you know there are advantages to keeping you safe there are longer term costs associated with not not just in terms of performance but also just enjoyment with your sport and you know it can get it can get pretty deep for some people you know your sense of worth as a rider you know how good of a rider do you think you are that sort of thing it can it can bum some people out and i've seen on you know i've been I've been abroad on mountain biking holidays, and people end up not having a good time sometimes because they just feel like they're no good at it they're no they're no good at this this thing they came here to do um because that becomes their go to reaction so I don't know if you can relate to any yeah. of that of what I've been saying, Chris. Have
0: you got examples examples of some of those things I've been talking about that you can relate to? For sure, yeah, I've definitely had bad days. On trips, One that stands out in my mind was Dunkeld in Scotland um, on a very wet day. And the first trail we rode on that day, which was like the, Mm. I guess the entry level track on the hill was just slippery, wet rock. And I just struggled the whole way down it and felt, I mean, I was pretty much ready to, you know, to sack the day off and go back to the car kind of thing. It was that bad. Mm. And it was a real battle Mm. for me to like, try and turn that into some kind of positive mindset and actually i got i did get there in the end and that day turned out to be pretty good fun on the bike but it still stands out as a day that started very badly and could have i could have written Mm. off the whole day quite quite easily and then yeah i've certainly had days on on foreign trips as well where i don't feel like i'm riding well and and i've seen friends go through that as well you know like desperate to get to the bar on the the night after a day on the trails just to drown their sorrows that they've had such a bad (laughs) time which is a massive shame when you're spending a fortune and traveling halfway across Europe so yeah yeah so
1: I I suppose you know I'd like to think that people listening can also relate this to their own experiences but I I suppose to summarize this kind of this this common challenge of encountering our weak points on the trail I suppose one of the one of the things I would always encourage people to be aware of is first of all like don't don't give yourself a hard time over it people especially like i don't know british riders in particular we kind of it's sort of part of our culture isn't it like you kind of you give yourself a bit of a hard time over the fact that you can't do doubles or something like that and you you actually like that part is entirely optional I, i sometimes talk about um optional versus uh compulsory suffering and um giving yourself a hard time because you can't hit a double is completely optional you know and that's that's worth (laughs) reminding yourself over in, in those kind of situations is you know there's there's absolutely no need for that in fact you can actually thank your brain for doing its job really well you know it evolved to do to do this to do this important thing of keeping you safe and you know what we've all got like amazing ferrari brains or i don't know you know santa cruz v10 brains that are super good at doing their job at keeping us safe and so don't give yourself a hard time because that's just the way you're hardwired but then at the same time it is kind of worth reflecting on well what is my relationship with these these weak points am i giving into the amyg- amygdala hijack and is that just my go-to habitual response uh my habitual reaction or am I able to think and weigh up the longer term costs of not doing this? And sometimes, you know, you can you can use that to, well, respond in alternative ways, which we'll actually get onto in some of the subsequent points, Chris. But what do you think of some of those kind of practical implications, this idea of uh, not giving yourself the optional suffering, um, you know, recognizing the amygdala hijack is just a normal part of your brain's job. And then also thinking about these short-term costs versus uh, short-term benefits versus long-term costs.
0: I think, well, I so, uh, certainly, um, accepting the way your brain works and not beating yourself up about it is something that I've got much better about over years. Like I did some work with a, a riding coach a good few years ago now, um, Mm. who very much said like when you you know you look at a feature you know whether it's on or not on that day and if it's not on that's fine like it's totally okay Mm. you need to be okay with that you need to be happy to walk away from it but to know that you're going to go away and do the work to make sure that at some point you're going to walk up to that feature and go okay today it's on like building up to it whatever that Mm. whatever that looks like Mm. so i'm much better at walking away from something now and not beating myself up about that just kind of moving on from it so I think that's something I've got mm. better at and I'm also better at accepting that I'm not necessarily going to be as good as other riders in the group that I'm riding with certainly these days because I've ended up with the opportunity through the podcast of riding with some very talented people um, yeah. and being okay with that as well so that that's definitely helped I think
1: yeah well you know you, you actually said a couple of interesting things there Chris and you know this idea that you you're okay with, you know, essentially not hitting a feature on a particular day and not beating yourself up if that doesn't happen that day. And, and, um, what I would say is that's very rational. And what you tend to see is you tend to see that more with older, with older, not saying you're old, but like with more with old, with adult riders. Um, and actually I've worked a yeah, lot yeah. with, with young, young athletes in general. And, and, um, that is, is much more common to kind of have this irrational belief that, well, I must hit that road gap. If I don't, I'm, I'm a failure. And you see, you'll see it particularly in competitive young riders. You know, if you're if you're a younger rider and you're into racing, then actually it's very easy to get into this space where you're beating yourself up because you're not hitting a particular jump or you're you're not committing to a feature. Um, and actually, it, that's just partly because of the way our brains are hardwired. When we're younger, it's it's a bit harder to. Uh, Get away from that amygdala hijack, but um, yeah, and I I think it comes with practice as well, Chris. You know what you've described there is as that—that's quite a a rational, well thought out response. That you know, some days it's not on, other days it is, Um, and that's—I think you've got quite—it sounds like quite a healthy relationship with your amygdala in that in that sense. Um, Whereas other people, they don't necessarily have that. They they will give into the amygdala hijack regularly, and that will be their go-to response always. And um, it is actually something you can work on to get to that point that you've hopefully that you've described there, Chris. Um. So I'm I'm curious. We're kind of actually getting on to the second items here, Chris. So if we could if we could maybe move on to those items, we're we're actually getting into this this space now of dealing with mindset and. You know how we respond instead when we're having the the mindset of I'm having a bad day I'm rubbish I'm not enjoying this Why am I making so many mistakes? Um, you know, you've you've kind of already said, Chris, that you're you're you've. It sounds a bit like you you get into this space of acceptance that you're like okay that that happens mm. from time to time. Is that have you, have you got anything else you want to add to that?
0: I think you're right. It is acceptance, and it's definitely come with time and practice. Um, and there's maybe, there's been a few, maybe, um, things that have happened over the last probably 20 years that have helped with that. One that really stands out in my mind was I did a snowboard season in Chamonix with a friend. Um, and we went out on the first day of the season and we mm. the, the black run back into town was, it was closed, unpisted So obviously it, being the law-abiding citizens we are, we ducked the tape and uh, went to ride this amazing (laughs) powder all the way down to town. Um, And there's a real long kind of flat traverse on the way back where you obviously on a snowboard, you definitely Mm -hmm. need to carry a lot of speed across. And I crashed just coming onto the flat, lost all my speed and had to kind of hike out and was super angry with myself and, you know, not not throwing my toys out the pram, but pretty close. And uh, my friend had a real word with me. She was like, what are you doing? Like, look at where you are. Mm. You're in the mountains. You're at the start of, you know, a six month snowboard season. People would kill for this opportunity. There's no one around. It's beautiful. Mm, mm. You're not hurt. Like everything's fine. Have a word with yourself. What are you doing? Why are you getting angry about this? And that's always Mm. kind of stood out in my head as, you know, whenever you get frustrated on a trail, you've got to kind of put it into perspective, like why are you here? Mm. How good is this really? Like we're so privileged to do what we do to have this sport, which is so much fun. Like, Mm. is it really an issue to walk this two meters of trail if you need to, or to have a bit of fear about a feature? It's not really Mm. shouldn't be a big issue. I think that's one thing. And then I guess the coaching I did with, with a line in Sheffield, like around just, allowing yourself to be connected to that you know stop look at something you're scared of work out how you feel about that and decide whether it's on or not but also if it's not on what can you go and work on like how can you step away from it and get to the point one day where you can hit that feature so they they look a lot kind of isolating features from trails so can you find a similar feature that's maybe got a straight run in and a straight exit with nothing to hit so that you can Mm. practice the feature Mm. without you know having that awkward turn into it or whatever happens to be um but yeah just i think just knowing that saying no to a feature is not the end of it like there's opportunity to Mm. go away and get to the point where that feature is a yes yeah i love that you
1: know and uh, I, i kind of i'm kind of hearing i'm kind of hearing two things there chris which is um you you're quite good at this logical perspective taking when it comes to some of these some of these risks or these these situ well some of these these trail features or some of these uh moments like where you were describing describing with the snowboarding um and that that was kind of what i was going to say as kind of one of my big kind of i suppose tips if you like for dealing with with mindset when it comes to these things is just be aware of what your relationship is like with with these um, these situations um, y- you know it's it's very easy for us to react emotionally to these situations like you were describing with uh, uh, your experience in, in Chamonix. Um it's easy to react emotionally and to get really hooked with these thoughts I kind of I kind of talk about it as if we're getting Hooked or blinded with these thoughts, and that is that is the amygdala hijack I was talking about. And uh, it's very tempting and easy to do that. Um, you know, it's it's. I sometimes get people to do this exercise where they put their hands in front of their eyes, and that's as if the thoughts are completely clouding their vision. But what you can do is you can try and just get that little bit of perspective, where you move your hands away from your face, and the thoughts and those feelings are still there. You can't get rid of that emotional reaction and those those irrational thoughts, but you can try and create that space between, between that and a more considered uh, logical response, which is what it sounds like you were you were doing in that moment. Because, um, y- you know, you I-, I see people doing this at races. You know, if you have two race runs, for example, your first race run might go badly because you make a small mistake. And you see people at the bottom of the race runs, like, you know, completely hooked by their thoughts, hooked by their emotions. They're like, "Ah, oh, that was." I'm so annoyed at that. I can't believe I did that. Why did that happen? Um, and actually, what you need to do in those moments is you need to unhook from those thoughts, get some distance from them, and say, "Well, look, I'm still annoyed. My brain is doing its job. Thank you, thank you for that brain. But I need to also think about my more um, considered response. What is my response going to be for my next race run? I need to be able to." give a little nod of approval towards those irritating thoughts, those irritating feelings, and then just focus back on the feature that I'm trying to focus on. Like, like you said, with your coaching session, Chris, you know, understand your relationship with the feature. Are you getting hooked with thoughts of there's no way in hell I'm hitting that double, or there's no way I'm going to, going to get the, the downslope of that drop or something like that. Or are you able to have a more logical response where you think, okay, This is my action plan this is what i need to do and work on and um you can focus back on the the demands of the actual task rather than getting hooked with the thoughts and the feelings that come with it um that's quite a hard thing to do for some people because we're we're very it's drilled into us from a young age and on a day-to-day basis that if we have a thought or a feeling we need to react to it but um you can hopefully try and get that space where you can respond more logically and Set an an action plan, you know, well, if I want to ride this drop and it's currently too big for me, I need to go to this other trail where I can ride a a drop that I know it'll give me some confidence if I ride that one and I can have a friend train me in. and that's going to be the process that I'm going to follow. And you can keep it focused on these logical step-by-step sequences um, rather than getting hooked um, with these thoughts and feelings that might show up. I mean it sounds like that's kind of the process think, that you've managed to go through yourself Chris. What 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 are your thoughts?
0: Well yeah, I was go- I was going to say I think one of the key things that you said there that I'd never really thought about is the the emotional response never goes away. Like if you're trying if you're trying to approach this by Absolutely. fixing the emotional response, I think you're stuck because I still get that annoyed feeling or that angry feeling, but I'm much better at being aware of that, catching that feeling and then using that feeling in a different way and having a much more positive mm-hmm. kind of take from there onwards. But the feeling's mm-hmm. never gone. Mm-hmm. I never stop on a trail yeah. because I'm scared of a feature or to have a look at a feature without feeling disappointed or angry. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I would actually say, Chris, that's, that's a big realization that most people uh, they, they struggle with initially, because I think most of us think Of course, I should be able to get rid of a feeling of nervousness or I should be able to magic away this fear. Or, you know, the the, the thing that fascinates me is when people say, like, I'm not feeling confident to hit that today. But confidence is not a feeling that just magically appears. It's not something that you can just will up out of thin air. That's not how emotions work. You actually have very little control over your emotions. Um, A better option is to just make peace with the fact that that emotion is going to be there, and you, you need to decide what you're going to do in the presence of it, regardless of the fact that it's there. Um, I sometimes use the metaphor of um, it's like you're you've tried to uh, organize a party and you've invited all of your good friends, um, but then that one friend that you didn't want to find out about the party found out about it, and they're they're coming to your to your door and knocking on the door, and they want to come into the party. That friend of yours is not really going to go away, so you might as well just open the door, let the friend in, and make peace with the fact that they're in there and they're at the party, even if um, yeah. they're maybe you know ruining the vibe of the party a little bit. That's better than you putting all of your effort trying to keep that door closed and you know not enjoying your party. Um, so uh yeah we we sometimes talk about the unwanted party guest you can't get rid of that thought or that feeling you might as well make peace with the fact that it's still going to be there you just need to get on with your riding
0: yeah fair comment that makes a lot of sense
1: cool um so cracking on we are uh also interested in talking about fear of the unknown and getting hurt and i think you know a lot of these points they kind of bleed into one another chris but uh particularly talking about things like judging risk when riding a new track or encountering scary sections of trail. How do we deal with the anxiety or the lack of confidence that we might encounter here? And I think, you know, we've kind of spoken about it already. You've said that, you know, you you have these days where you might decide actually today it's on or today it's not on. What are the differences for you there on those days where it is on and you're, you're feeling ready to hit that feature? What's different about those days for you?
0: Um, I guess they, they probably, it's probably a buildup. It's probably the riding that's happened in the previous couple of months that dictates how I feel on that given day. And also whether I'm in a place that I know well, or, or whether I'm somewhere new that I don't know. And to an extent who I'm with as well, like there's certain people who I know well enough that I know they're going to Keep me safe. They're not going to send me down anything that I'm, you know, really not able to do. They know my riding well enough to say, you're fine here, or mm. maybe you want to be careful of that. Um, so I think it's a combination mm. of stuff. So if I've been riding well for a period of time, maybe I've not had any crashes for a while and I'm feeling good about my riding, um, then I'm probably more likely to like attack trails, maybe not the right word, but to ride a trail with confidence and to ride it well. Mm. If maybe I'm a bit nervous about it, I'm nervous about riding with that group or that person or I don't know the trail, then my riding definitely gets kind of tighter, stiffer, less committed to things. And I'm more likely to avoid things or walk away from an obstacle or a feature on the trail, I think. Does that make sense? Yeah, completely. And to be honest,
1: you know, this is actually we might as well answer questions three and four now because we're talking about fear of the unknown and pushing our comfort zones because those two things are really related in this instance chris and uh, i love what you said there about may the days where it feels like it's on like today i'm gonna hit that jump or or whatnot it's because you've maybe had a couple of days or weeks where you've been riding regularly and you've been riding good and uh I've said before that, you know, confidence is is not really something we have control over. It's a feeling that kind of waxes and wanes and it comes and goes. But what we do tend to find is that you're feeling most confident when you've had a history of performing or riding well. And you see this when you're watching, you mm-hmm. know, EWS or World Cup racing. The people that tend to perform well tend to go on to have winning streaks or they tend to have good seasons, right? Um, I mean, you can see that with, you know, I'm you know, in the the first few rounds of the World Cup, for example, um, if you've been performing well, that instills confidence. But we don't always have loads of control over that. So I I still always encourage people to not worry too much about confidence because it's not something we have control over. You did also say that who I'm with has a big influence on, on whether or not it feels like it's on that day. And that's a really interesting point because I'm sure all of us can relate to the fact that there are some people we ride with that don't inspire confidence because there may be more risk averse or they are, um, you know, they're maybe just a little bit more nervous themselves, for example. Um, and then you have other groups of people who are, you know, they're always up for hitting features and they're good at encouraging you and keeping the vibe of the group quite positive. And, you know, I my, my recommendation there is if you do want to push your boundaries and, you know, push your comfort zone and and you know try to get a better relationship with the fear of the unknown you can try and use that to your advantage because that's quite tangible you know you, you can actually say well if I want to go out and hit this jump I know who I want around me because they're they're not going to get me worried about what might go wrong they're actually going to get me excited about what it might be like to hit that feature And and this is what sports psychologists talk about as being in a challenge state, which is like, this is a positive challenge that I'm up for doing versus being in a threat state, which is, this is a scary thing and I don't know if I have the resources to actually cope with it and perform successfully. And actually, there's quite a lot of evidence to show that the social support you have around you, the people you have around you has a big impact on whether or not you go into that positive challenge state or into that negative threat state. and that's just that's for a range of reasons, as I've already said. But you, I don't know, Chris, have you had that before, where you're maybe in a group of riders and the things they're saying that are just not good for the riding vibe that day? You have people that focus a lot on like, oh, you know, what if I crash on this trail? And they talk, they talk almost about that too much. It can really affect the the vibe and the things that you then subsequently focus on as a rider. And then you have other groups who are actually quite they get you stoked and they, you know, they put you into more of that positive challenge frame of mind. Have you got any stories you could share like that?
0: Uh, I don't know if I I can think of any specific stories, but I've definitely had that where you follow someone down a trail and they'll like pull over for a feature. Mm. And you think like, I've definitely had that thought, like, I'm pretty sure if they hadn't pulled over, I'd have just ridden that realized it was easy and it would have been fine. But now we've stopped and we've looked at it because things often look worse. Mm. If you walk up a trail, things look horrific. Like never walk up a trail Absolutely. from the bottom for the Absolutely. first time. That's <laughs> always a scary way to look at a feature. But also quite often when you stop and look at something, you can convince yourself it's dangerous or hard. And where if, if you, you know, I've ridden some of the biggest features I've ever ridden accidentally because I've come into a trail that I didn't know mm, yeah. at all was going way too fast to stop. So just had to pull up for a gap or whatever and had an incredible burst of adrenaline, but kind of got through it. Um, so yeah, I've definitely had experiences where, yeah, the people in the group can kind of be part of the downward spiral, I guess. Um, and yeah, definitely there's people that are really good at encouraging me to hit things, um, riders that I trust as Mm. well. Like, there's certain people that I know if I'm following them and I'm on their back wheel going at the same speed, whatever we Mm. get to is going to be fine because they're a really good rider. They're good at interpreting terrain. They're they're a safe person to be Mm. behind. And then there's other people that, you know, I know where that's not the case. Like there may be a bit less, um, maybe they don't have that kind of risk adversity to a, Rational level, maybe, and they'll just pull and hope for the best, and that's not always the best person to follow because they tend to crash quite often, and they can take you along on that journey as well. So there's, yeah, there's a there's a wide spectrum, I think, of of people out there.
1: And uh, what I would
0: add to that is,
1: with some athletes, I find that you know, outdoor outdoor sports athletes tend to be less keen for this idea, but. You can you can take this to the extent where you actually create like a what I call like a headspace list. So like it's it's essentially uh-huh. like a list of ingredients. Like what do I need to get into that challenge state of mind that that's gonna that's gonna get me um, into a space where I see the fear of the unknown as something that's actually quite exciting and it's a positive challenge that I want to rise to, rather than it being something scary, a threat that. I, that You know that actually makes me stiffen up and get all tense, and my body language becomes, you know, less optimal on the bike. And you you can actually create if if you take the time to examine it. I I encourage all the athletes I work with to do this, is to come up with with a list of things you can do to get you more into that challenge state. So if you find that you tend to hit bigger features with this one particular rider you trust if you if you're serious about you know progressing your jumping or riding a particular feature why don't you make a point of riding with that person more often or getting or following them it, there's no harm in a group of riders to say well i really want to hit this feature and you know i really want to follow my friend john into this into this next section of the trail because they're going to instill that feeling of uh, reassurance and confidence they're going to get me into that challenge state and there's loads of different ingredients. I mean, a, a, every person is different, but you you can come up with this this headspace list or this this list of things that will get you more into that challenge. That whether it's, um, you know, thinking about who's in your riding group. Um, maybe you've had a couple of days of good riding and you're in a good mental headspace to to hit a new feature. Um, and you've actually already mentioned another one, Chris, which was your your body language. So if you notice yourself tensing up and leaning further and further back on the bike because you're scared just catch yourself and say oh I'm doing that thing again. I need to make sure that I get myself into that challenge state. so you know relax your grip, drop your ankles, lean forward a little bit more, that sort of thing um, you, you know you can create a simple list of five to six items that will get you into that challenge that challenge headspace and actually I'd say if you can if you can follow those things consistently, you can have a, a better relationship with the fear of the unknown getting hurt and you can push your comfort zone in a more effective manner.
0: Can you give some examples then maybe of of some of the things that you see being on that list for a lot of people? So we talked about, you know, confident or not confidence, but sort of yeah, physical positioning on the mm-hmm. bike. We talked about choosing who you ride with or ride behind on the trail. Are there other things Absolutely. that would be like, common features on that list uh
1: well just a quick one on that body language
0: thing uh scott
1: lochland on his youtube channel he did like this uh he he does quite a a lot of nice videos of you know riding around scotland and he has this video of him riding down Damaya and sterling and he he starts off his video by saying uh you know when i'm when i'm feeling at my best on the bike i always do this can you spot what i'm doing and then eventually in the video he says i drop my ankles a lot and for him, that's quite clearly one of those things that's on his list of getting him into a challenge state. If he drops his ankle, his ankles, he just gets into, he just gets into a more comfortable body position. His mind-body relationship has associated that with him being in a flow state. So if you can identify mm-hmm. those kind of particular features of your body language that will get you more into that challenge state, that's a good thing. And I would encourage all riders to have a think about that. You know, is it maybe that you need to, get your elbows up a bit more. You need to not, you know, white knuckle death grip completely. You, maybe it's a case of when you have like a short flat section of the trail where you can reset a little bit, you just need to do a little ankle bounce or like a little manual just to kind of get you into that fun headspace if you like. Um, but yeah, absolutely. There's loads of other things. Um, quite common ones that, that you know sports psychologists will incul- encourage athletes to think about is your use of uh, self-talk that you use in the heat of the moment mm-hmm. um there are some absolute basics here that i think every rider should get right and that is to avoid um negative instructional self-talk okay so saying things like whatever you do you know don't hit that tree or don't hit that root you know, and it's very much like me saying to you, Chris, don't
0: think about a pink elephant. What happens if we do that? Yeah, straight away, think about a pink elephant. We had this, we rode a trail in uh, near San Juan, and I remember it was very exposed. And I just remember the guide saying, whatever you do, don't crash off the left hand side <laughs> of the trail, yeah. which is kind of, I mean, it is right. We did need to know because the exposure to the left was insane. But it doesn't, in a way, yeah, doesn't really help exactly. Um, and that's that's because of the way that attention works in the brain.
1: We again, we are, are we are biased to, to orient towards danger. So you know, telling yourself whatever you do, don't hit that route, is is just you're going to hit that route because that's that's what your brain is immediately focusing on. So I think some of these other things you can put on your your headspace list or your challenge list um, is things of, like what are the positive cues that I need to focus on, and and I don't mean like you know like visualize success think of yourself as like a world cup racer positive i don't mean that i mean like what what line do i need to hit where do i need to look when i'm out of this corner you know this is that's particularly relevant to racers actually like if you're trying to think of of how you want to navigate your way down um down a racetrack you want to come up with these specific self talk cues that will orient your attention towards the relevant part of the track um you know Mm -hmm. They often say things like, you know, two clicks down on on the shifter at this part of the track, or something like that. So you can get really, you can get really uh, minuscule with the level of detail if you want to, if you're a racer. But for the average rider, I would just say, let's say you've had a small mistake. It might even be something quite as simple as you know, just a self-talk phrase like, like reset, or you come to the next part of the track where it's like, okay, here we go, lean in or something, just something like that. It's very personal to each individual person. And I can't really give concrete recommendations in that sense, but um, you know, for, for me personally, when I'm riding, if, I've, if I'm feeling sketchy and a bit tense, I might actually say to myself, lean in. And that's just my go-to word because then that gets me into that more aggressive body, uh, body positioning on the bike. And I kind of just purposefully attack the trail after i hear after i remind myself uh, to do that um another one that you know you know again a classic thing that sports psychologists will get people to think about is is the is the visualization or the imagery of the movement you're trying to recreate um, so with swimmers there's a, a swimmer that i work with for example he was trying to get the right technique of his start dive and uh for him the image was really a dolphin as soon as he takes off he just wants that nice arc of this like you know smooth very powerful mammal and uh, for him that image was just the thing that it just gave him that nice powerful kick off the start and uh it helped to get get him into the right body positioning so uh you can do something very similar on the bike actually i um i don't know for me for example whenever i get a jump i love to do a whip to the left and uh, for me for me the imagery that i that I tend to think of there is like a bit of an arc. Even before I get to the lip of the jump, I kind of I kind of see mm-hmm. the arc of the jump. It's, it's almost like a little, um, like a video game, like a green line that kind of goes over the arc. And, uh, and then I can kind of, if I follow that with my front wheel, then I know I can pull the left end of the, the back end of the bike as far as I like. As, as long as I follow that green line, I know I'm fine. And that actually gets me into that, yeah. like, you know, yeah, challenge state. That's exactly the process I know I need to follow. I don't know if you've got anything uh, similar uh, to those examples I've listed, Chris, that you could relate to. I don't,
0: I, I've, I've sort of mentioned in the past, I think on the podcast that sometimes I have like a, I, I almost visualize riding videos mm-hmm. in my mm-hmm. head of riders that I like mm-hmm. to watch. Um, like riders like Kate Edwards, Chaos Egrave, like riders with a smooth kind of, style that i appreciate Mm. sometimes i kind of see that in my head as i'm riding Mm -hmm. stuff and it i don't know how i don't really know how it works i can't really explain it but it sort of it makes me feel more relaxed and more playful on the bike
1: which tends to work and you do get that so that's uh, an example of what we might call vicarious imagery actually like I don't have anywhere near the same shape of body as as Greg Menor. I'm nowhere near tall enough, but when I'm riding a downhill track, I kind of like to think of like what would his body position look like on this part of the track and obviously, because he's also quite a high level rider, you kind of get this vicarious sense of confidence from doing that um so yeah, absolutely, mm-hmm. and the, you know some for some people they like to visualize what you know uh, a pro might look like or or one of their favorite writers would look like writing this and you try and emulate that as best as you can when you think of that um so yeah so those are those are kind of some of the in the moment little things you can do to get yourself more into that challenge space and to push your comfort zone one other thing i would do is this um and this is kind of getting us into the last uh item chris about dealing with with mistakes after the fact but uh, one of the other things I sometimes encourage athletes to do uh, when it comes to these these headspace lists or challenge lists is um, is think about what kind of contracting do you want to m- make yourself go through before you start riding. So, for example, um, a classic one is if you're at the top of a trail and you know there's a feature on there that you know is scary and that you've not perhaps not hit the first time. I mean. Chris, I don't, I don't know for you if it might even be going back to like a trail feature that you've you've had some bad history on, you know, at the top of that trail, you're going to get that amygdala hijack. And part of that challenge list, that, that list of things you want to do to make you get yourself into that headspace, it can actually be to go through a bit of like contracting with yourself before you start riding. You say to yourself, okay, Chris, I'm expecting... amygdala hijack at this point on the trail. I know it's going to happen. You can literally say that to yourself and you can say, I want to respond to that amygdala hijack by doing this. So you actually, you almost make a little contract with yourself before you start riding and say, you know, when I encounter that part of the trail, I know I'm going to get the amygdala hijack and this is how I want to respond to it in that moment. Um, you know, we as riders, as athletes, we have a tendency to want to ignore the negative side of things. Like we don't want to think about the fear that, might, that we might get on the trail. But I always encourage, our, you know, riders, athletes to think about that stuff because if you, if you know it's coming and you can anticipate it, you're far more better prepared to respond to it.
0: Um, yeah, I think I, I did that actually at EWS 100 without really thinking about it. But the, the final stage had the classic mm-hmm. road gap in Lethen, which I'd never actually ridden um, because although it's not really a gap, I've always thought well, it's quite fast. Like, what if I case it? Is it going to like ping me or something funny? And I, in my race run, I remember like thinking to myself, right, I'm going to come into that. I know I'm going to tense up. Exactly. I know I'm going to want yeah. to break. Like I'm going to allow myself a little tiny panic yeah. break and then I'm going to get off them." I'm going to like relax and I'm just going to pull and it's all going to be. And I just sort of, I guess, visualize myself landing where I needed to land. It's all going to be fine. Get on the brakes into the next turn. And it was totally fine. It was completely fine. And it, but it's an obstacle that up until then, you know, I've been to Inletha many times over the years. I've never ridden it. It's always put a bit Mm -hmm. of fear in me, but putting it in a race run just gave me that little extra nudge to say right we're going to do this here's what here's how we're going to approach it and it did it did definitely help i think yeah so yeah and, and subsequently i've ridden other features similar to that that i've not ridden before mm-hmm. at other spots because i've looked at them and gone well that feels yeah, okay exactly. now like, because i did that i didn't do it well particularly it wasn't stylish wasn't amazing but yeah. i did it and so, yeah, it's, it's kind of opened the door on to similar features yeah. elsewhere as well. So that's been well, quite useful. Exactly, Chris.
1: And, you know, the, the power of like just doing a little bit of contracting with yourself and saying, like, I know I'm going to tense up on that part of the trail. This is what I'm going to do when that happens. Those are examples of those things you can put on that, that little challenge list uh, when you put that together. And um, I also just wanted to say, you know, we spoke earlier about things like, you know, choosing not to engage in like the optional suffering, that sort of thing. You can yeah, add yeah. things like that to the challenge list as well. It's like if I make a mistake, this is what I'm going to do. You know, I'm I'm not going to engage in in the optional abuse that I give myself. You know, and that, that can le- <laughs> yeah. legitimately be part of your your plan. Um, and you know, it, it might it might seem it's it might seem strange, but if if you go through that exercise of like coming up with these are the things that I would like to do that will get me into that challenge state of mind to let me push my boundaries have a good relationship with, um, with fear and whatnot. It might seem a bit strange, but you know what? If you go through that exercise and you can look at that sheet and say, you know what, these five or six things, I believe that they will get me into that better mindset for riding. So the mere fact that you've done that exercise and you're looking at that list of things in front of you, you'll think, yeah, you know what? I feel more prepared now. And that in itself will get you into that challenge state of mind. I sometimes encourage athletes to to write that down and put it in a jar and keep it in their van, you know, so that they can they can like walk by it and they can see yeah, there's my challenge list. If I do those things, I know it will get me into the best the best headspace possible.
0: For sure. And I I, I guess worth mentioning that there are there are definitely instances of people out there that can be like a negative influence Mm, out on the mm. trails like and i've i'm lucky enough that they don't exist in any of the groups that i generally ride with but i've definitely seen Mm. it and i've i've called it out on a few instances with people where they're giving someone a hard time for not riding a feature or they're Mm. not you know they're they're creating an even more negative response around someone not wanting to ride something or walk something or crashing on a feature and i guess i'd encourage people to kind of you know you can choose yeah. who you ride with hopefully hopefully you've got that luxury you don't have to go riding with people mm-hmm. that aren't helpful on that side of things and and also for people to just be cognitive of what other people Absolutely. are experiencing when they're riding stuff to you know to try and help them and encourage them yeah. rather than completely um being negative and, you know
1: i think um we don't really talk about these things, but everyone can have so much more of a better experience out on the trail if you're just willing to like ask people. So, you know, does it help you if we talk about like hitting these big features or does it help we if, help you if we egg you on or not? And actually, if, if you can yeah, understand yeah. the people in your group a little bit better, you can all, you know, feed off each other and push each other up that much better. I mean, I guarantee you that, you know, World Cup race teams, they will go through exercises like this, you know. They'll say, "Well, actually, if you want the best out of me as a teammate, as a as a rider in your group, do these things and don't do these things." And actually, that level of understanding <laughs> can get everyone into that challenge state more readily. Um, and I don't see why, you know, why would you not just do that with your regular riding mates? It means you can all end up having a better time. You can even turn it into a bit of a a joke, you know, while you're pedaling up the fire road to get to the start of the the, the first stage or the first trail. You can say okay guys like you know listen to the the downtime podcast let's do that exercise what is like the one thing in this group that like really gets you stoked and the one thing that really gets you anxious and nervous and you just kind of you can you can all share that in your writing group have a bit of a laugh about it but then in the back of your mind you're like you know what I know now is not the right time to say that because my mate in the riding group is going to react badly to that and they're not going to have a good time. Yeah. You can, you can do things like that. It doesn't require you to sit down in a, in a circle Alcoholics Anonymous style and it be a very in-depth meeting. It's something that <laughs> can be fun. It can be lighthearted and you can do it in the space of a few moments out on the trail.
0: Yeah, for sure. And you're right. It's not, it's different for everyone, right? So for some people being told, Oh, that obstacle's easy you don't need to worry about it. That's enough for some people. That's the last thing they want to hear. And also like some, one person saying, Oh, it's just trail speed. Follow me in. Like if one person says that I might be like, Oh yeah, Mm -hmm. sweet. I'll do that. If another person in the group says that I might be like, Mm -hmm. Oh no, that's if you think that, then I'm probably, that's not the right thing for me kind of thing. So yeah, there's, it's definitely worth getting to know, I guess. And that's not, that's not something that, i've done with groups that i'm in but i'd be intrigued to, to have some of those conversations because you you feel like you know people and you you you've assumed yeah. certain things over years of writing with them but some stuff you might be right with other things exactly maybe and not.
1: you know psychologists do this with the teams that they work and we we get people to have these conversations because it gets them to understand each other better and uh i've got some writing friends that i i know you know i i ask them questions like you know so what will get you to, to try this feature? And they tell me, and I'm like, okay, well, you know, as, as one of the people you ride with, I can, I can facilitate that. I can support you. And it's nice to do that to you, you know, with the people you ride with as well. So, um, let's, uh, and that, that kind of segues us, Chris, uh, onto this, this last one. And we've kind of spoken around a little bit already, but dealing with big mistakes, crash, crashes, and injuries, how do we respond to that in the most adaptive way possible afterwards? And, you've obviously you know you've had you have had the experience of of a big injury you know as as have i actually i've i, I separated my shoulder and and that was a pretty a pretty big injury as well um what do you has your experience been of how you respond to mistakes and setbacks uh what is what is the way to do it in an adaptive way and what's the way to do it in a very unhelpful way
0: well, i guess yeah the the unhelpful side of things is is the self-abuse almost like you said like you it it really knocks you back it, it, you just lose i'm gonna use the word confidence again but you mm, you lose mm. trust in your ability um and your confidence out on the trail goes um and i guess it's just for me like it, i think the FEMA break was just up until then i would f- sort of felt invincible like cuts and bruises is fine you know that always is going to happen I, I, I had maybe like ac separations but not any real significant Mm. damage to my body and then suddenly you're like okay well this really can hurt and has the potential in some instances it has the potential to be be life changing right like we've definitely seen those injuries in mountain biking Mm. it is possible um so i think trying to have a healthy relationship with risk like you i may we're maybe sort of told that you know, you sort of have to just turn things off, turn your brain off, detach from that side of things, which I don't think is a healthy way to ride. And you, you, there, there maybe are people that ride like that and they get hurt regularly and mm. hurt a lot and and often hurt quite badly. Mm. Um, so for me, it's been about, I guess, getting comfortable with what level of risk I'm willing to accept and trying to, you know, like for each particular thing, looking at where what is the level of risk here? Because actually a lot of the stuff, so drops generally or steep sections of trail are pretty slow. And Mm. if the trail's steep, you tend to roll rather than hitting the ground really hard. So Mm. if you get something wrong on a fairly steep section of trail, if you're going slow, okay, you're going to have a crash, but it's probably not going to be that bad. And therefore maybe I'm more okay with that. Whereas the risk of like, okay, to ride this rock section, well, I've got to hit it at this pace and I've got a gap, this part of it or whatever. And if that goes wrong, I'm doing 30 mile an hour and I'm going to ragdoll through all these horrible pointy hard rocks. Maybe (laughs) that's not, maybe that's not a risk that I'm willing to take. And I'm all right with that. Like I'm 43. I've got other commitments it's not, yeah. I'm not going to let that detract from my enjoyment of this sport. Like I'll yeah. just accept that and move on. Um, mm. cause I think, you know, if you're a mountain biker, you probably enjoy risk to some extent. It's part of the yeah. buzz, but Absolutely. your appetite for risk changes on a daily basis. It changes over time, mm. depending mm. on what you've got going on in your life. And as you get older, maybe you, you have less appetite for it. I don't know. But yeah, I think just being yeah. conscious of that has helped me a lot. not sure if i've answered the question really no
1: you, you know you've you've mentioned all of the different things i would i would recommend for anyone to to think about when you know when it comes to um when it comes to dealing with mistakes and making peace with risk and things like that so i suppose just to kind of paraphrase what you've said chris at the end of the day you can't switch your brain off your brain is simply it's too powerful an organ and it will do its job and in the unfortunate scenario you know when you do injure yourself you you're not going to be able to just switch it off and like be a robot and like okay well you know i need to walk down the trail you know might have to go to hospital have to go through a rehab program or whatever you know in a a bad case it might also just be something like i've got a flat tire i need to get back to the car park and put a worm in it or something like that but um you, you can't switch your brain off so what i sometimes encourage people to do is again, anticipate what that response is going to be like if you have a worst case scenario. You know, people might have heard about like the grieving process, you know, the idea that you go through like seven different stages of like a grieving process. It's not quite the same, but I would encourage people to think about your brain has to go through something similar after a really big mistake. Mm -hmm. There is a shock phase because you're high on adrenaline and, and your primitive brain you can almost think of your primitive brain as being something separate to yourself. It has to make sense of the situation first. So if I've had a really big crash, I just, I, I was doing a, a tweed love race last year and on one of the last stages, um, I was coming down golfy and um, I had a big crash. I was on a burner of a run, but I had a big crash and like absolutely like pelted my, my tibia off a tree and that kind of like spun me round, And um, I was as soon as that happened, I knew that um, there is no way in hell I'm going to be able to think rationally about this for the next ten to fifteen minutes. I need to just let my brain freak out for a bit, and um, it was interesting because, like, as soon as I, I I got up, I could feel like my body was shaking, my legs were shaking, and I was like, <laughs> "That's just that's just my amygdala doing its job. I'm just going to let it do that for a couple of minutes." And I I anticipated it, and I just I just sat. And just kind of just tried to focus on you know the pine needles on the ground just breathe for a little bit and rightly enough the brain did its job 15 minutes later the shaking stopped and i was like okay what now and that that allowed me to reset because i i just accepted the fact that my brain was it had to do its thing um and then i attempted to understand the problem at hand i I fixed the the bit of my derailleur that was broken, I went to the medic to check that I was okay, thankfully I was, and then I just pedaled up to the next stage. And you know, it's kind of kind of like you said try and try and understand um try and understand what it is that's happened if you've made a mistake or try and understand what it is you need to do to get through the challenging scenario on the trail that you can only do that once you've allowed the brain to go through its its Emotional reaction that it needs to do first of all, um, and you also mentioned contracting, right? You basically said that uh, Chris was the idea that you you need to kind of make almost make an agreement with yourself about how much risk am I willing to take here? Uh, you can you can and you can you can literally say that to yourself. You can say, you know what, I've got a job. Of, I've got to be in the office tomorrow at nine o'clock. I need to I need to you know not have a, a broken nose or whatever, and you know. I'm okay with you know maybe not hitting that triple because I need to function the rest of the week and mm-hmm. if you if you just make that contract with yourself before you drop in you're not going to give yourself as much of a hard time when you do then get to that feature and you decide not not to ride it quite as fast in the same way so it's just it's just taking those couple of seconds before you drop in and contracting with yourself you know what level of risk am I willing to commit to here what am I okay with not doing? You'll then give yourself that permission to like not pin it or to not, you know, not to try something risky. And you know what? If you do that, then you can circumnavigate that like self-loathing and the abuse you might give yourself if you if you didn't do it beforehand. Um, I've got one more one more thing uh, that I will share with you, but I'll, I'll I first I'm first keen to hear any any reflections you might have off the back of what I've said there, Chris.
0: Yeah, I think I mean it all it all makes sense. I guess the the challenge for a lot of people is they, I think everyone in their own head has a perception of where they're at, like their level. And whenever Mm -hmm. you have a big mistake, a big crash or a serious injury, or even, you know, it doesn't have to be a serious injury an injury. It can, it can kind of, it can lead you to question that perception or it can pull you away And I think that one of the biggest challenges people have is coming back to riding and accepting that for a period of time, they are not going to ride at that level that they are capable or they feel they they deserve in a way or that they're capable Mm. of. Mm. And that can be, I think it can be mentally challenging. Mm. It can be quite bad for your mental health and it can also lead riders to push too hard too soon or to try and replicate Mm. that like you might have lost let's say you've been off the bike with an acl injury it's probably six months like if you even if you've done all your rehab very well you're probably coming back to the bike rusty you're lacking that confidence you've lost six months of time you're probably weaker in other areas of your body too because you've not been riding but if you go Mm. straight back in trying to ride at that perceived level you think you're at to try and make yourself feel good about coming back Mm. you're likely to crash right or you're going to have another Mm. accident and that can kind of snowball and build and i think it's how you deal with that return and being okay with the fact that it takes it can take time you know that you can't just dip back in where you left off and i think how you i don't know if you've got any kind of (laughs) tools or techniques to help people absolutely you've
1: preempted my final point chris that was a beautiful segue um (laughs) And um, but, you're, but you're completely right. In that scenario, there's one of two things that's going to happen if you put pressure on yourself to come back to where you were before. You're either going to get hurt again, or you're not quite going to manage to ride it in the way you want to. And then that whole optional abuse and like, self-loathing thing kicks in. So it's not, it's not a good route to go down. And in that scenario, I encourage people to do what I call a smarter thinking project. OK, so like if I'm working with an athlete that's coming back from injury, I say, OK, the number one project we're going to work on for the next couple of weeks, months, as you as you come back, as you build up your confidence, we're going to do a smarter thinking project. And the idea there is just anticipate that it is going to be very tempting to listen to these stories that your mind gives you. OK, like I, I'm a big fan of making of, of getting people to to think about their mind as, a, as an external being, if you like and our minds are very good storytellers so the smarter thinking project usually looks something like expect that your mind is going to start telling you all of these very you know appealing stories about like oh but you know you used to be so fast and like you could ride you could absolutely pin these berms beforehand you used to send that gap or like my my potential my potential is so much higher than this come on just 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 get on with it you know your, your brain will give you these really tempting stories and the temptation will be to to listen to them and to believe them and to get hooked by them but actually you can you can if you want to do the smarter thinking project you need to respond to those thoughts differently so that one of the things I, I often encourage athletes to do is just to thank their mind for that contribution it's like okay thanks thanks for that thought brain that's interesting but I'm recovering from an injury and I'm the purpose of today's ride is to just build up my confidence. So I'm not going to do that. You can, you can respond to your your thoughts in a playful manner like that. That will actually mean that you stay focused on the fact that, you know, well, I'm just coming back from an injury or I'm coming back from a loss of confidence. The point of today's ride is to take it easy. So thank you for that, you know, thought of self-loathing. Why aren't you riding it fast enough? You know, thank you for that brain but I'm going to just focus on doing the basics well today instead. Um, So I'd I'd encourage people to think about going through like a smarter thinking project, anticipate those, those um, stories that your brain will give you in those moments and try to respond in a smarter way instead.
0: What about like, I think people can get maybe set off on the, on the journey in that way, but then get frustrated with how long it can take. Because Mm. I think it's, it's very hard it's not like you can say, well, I've done this to myself. Okay. It's going to take X amount of time to get back up to speed. I think that varies even with mm-hmm. the same injury, it varies from person to person. Completely. Like how, mm-hmm. how do you go about, like, even if you've approached the journey in that smarter thinking way, how do you deal with the, any frustrations that kind of come or any perceived mm-hmm. setbacks along that, along that way? Yeah couple of
1: things so first of all anticipate that that will happen it's it's going to happen it's not going to be smooth and straightforward um a a common a common suggestion is to go through a little bit of a goal setting exercise i know that doesn't excite everyone but for some people that it works really well you know you're not going to get back up to the same level of fitness as you were before, you're not gonna manage, you know, to do the big long rides you did before, or you're not gonna manage to, you know, to ride that feature for quite some time. Why don't we set some smaller stepping stone goals in the meantime, that will give you that little boost of confidence? You know, it's like, I don't know if it was, um, if it was a jump, let's just say for argument's sake, that, you know, caused an injury why isn't why don't you make this the first small goal the small the first small stepping stone just getting on a pump track and once you've got that and you're you're good enough to get around a pump track the next goal will be to just get a bit of air over a roller on a pump track and then the next one is a tabletop that i've done many times before and then the next one might be a really controlled easy double and you can actually you, you can set little goals like that to help build up that confidence so so that your mind doesn't get doesn't run away with, oh, but I want to be at, you know, I want to be back where I was before. It keeps you focused on the small achievable steps you need to do. And it's 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 a bit like a video game, then, isn't it? You're you're trying to accomplish the small, the small goals that you can along the way. So that's that's one thing you can do. Um, the other thing I would just encourage people to do is to to be a little bit more present because it's our brains are very good at getting hooked with things that happened in the past or things that are might happen in the future um so we're more likely to think about oh oh, you know but I could ride this trail in under three minutes before and now it's taking me five minutes to get down or oh I I could I used to be able to hit that jump or ride that route line really well and now I can't do it anymore Um, you know just why not why not just get present instead why not just focus on the fact that you're riding your bike. Like what does it actually feel like to have the suspension moving under you to see if you can see if you can just appreciate the the small g-forces you're feeling around the burns that you're riding. Try and get out of your head and get into what you're doing. It's very hard for people to actually be 100% present with the activity that, that they're doing. And you can fundamentally always make that choice. You can always choose to focus on being present and just enjoying the fact that you're being on your bike that, that is an active choice you can make as an individual um and then my final suggestion around that chris how you can manage those this kind of the the frustrating fact that it might take time and setbacks to get back to where you were before is uh set up an, a non-riding project so if you're if you're properly you know off riding for a period of time you can do other things you can you can be the person that does the uplift for your mates you know think of all think of all the, the kudos and the free beer you'll get if you do that <laughs> but the important thing around that is as well it keeps you in contact with the riding community which is good for your mental health you don't want to exclude yourself from your hobby just because you're not able to ride it to the same level you were before because that's that can lead people down a a dark path quite quickly um, you can have non-riding projects you can do the uplift for your mates you can be the guy in the pits that's you know you know, changing wheel sets for people at races, or you can also, you know, delve into something completely different. Like, you know, well, I want to learn how to build a wheel, or I want to learn how to service my suspension or something like that, or, um, you know, get into, get into the downtime podcast. Maybe that's like your (laughs) non-riding project, but you know, it's, it's important that you stay connected with the sport that gives you a sense of meaning and that you enjoy. If you're if you're out of it for a while because you're injured or because you're uh you know for whatever reason it can have a negative impact on your mental health and you, and you want to do these non-riding projects to keep you involved in the sport
0: nice yeah and i guess some something that is becoming more and more there's more and more awareness around more and more conversation around is is like that return from concussion because i think you know physical injury not well concussion is a physical injury i guess but it's hard it's a lot harder for people to understand and it can go you can make progress and then you can kind of Mm. take backward steps and there doesn't seem to necessarily be any like obvious reason for that so yeah Mm. i guess in those instances like you say that keeping that connection to the sport in a way that's manageable with whatever your symptoms and situation are is also Mm. massively beneficial right because mental health is a is a big part of this if you're happy and that helps the body right you're gonna i I would assume if you're in a good mental state you're probably going to heal better as well yeah and it's it's that kind of uh, idea of a better a better person
1: makes a better rider right and you um fundamentally i don't think any of us got into mountain biking because we want to be high performing mountain bikers we got into it because we love it because it gives us friendship because it has a sense of meaning for us and you know a lot of psychology well-being research actually shows that that is essential for our our mental health as people it actually there's quite a lot of evidence to show that it helps us live longer, healthier, happier lives if we have these these communities and these activities that we can stay involved in so it's absolutely vital that you look after those parts of your sport um, if you're injured as well and, and like I said, you know be present with that enjoy those things even if you're not riding in quite the same way as you were before because that's why we do it at the end of the day isn't it is to is to be a part of this community and to to do the thing that we love it doesn't always have to be about pinning corners
0: <laughs> well that's a really good point we're always very or a lot of us are very kind of performance focused and, and analytical about how we get on and it's about progression and riding these features and accepting mm. risk and fear and all that kind of stuff but if you look at why you ride that's probably a very small part of it right yeah there's an element of being in nature there's the community that goes with it and even if you go out on a ride and you walk 10 features all the rest of that's still there the why still exists and it still delivers but sometimes we lose sight of that in a massive way i think Mm. and you know reflecting on that getting in touch
1: with your why i mean people people talk about that all the time why are you doing mountain biking in the first place just because you're injured or just because you're not as fast as your mates doesn't mean that you you have to lose touch with that absolutely for sure so those are all of the kind of main common mental challenges we wanted to work through Chris what would you say is
0: your kind of key takeaway from the conversation or key takeaways as such I think the biggest thing that's come out of it is the realization that the, those feelings those emotions are hardwired and I can't change that because mm-hmm. I, I I guess I'd I, and I don't think I'd be alone in this. I hoped that there's a way to change that. Um, so a realization that you can't, and it's about how you how you let those feelings impact you, how you deal with them, how you process them. That's the bit you can work on. That's the actionable piece here. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like, as much as I want to get rid of those feelings, I like understanding that I can't get rid of them. So I think that's a big thing because I've never really clicked on that, I guess. Um, mm. I'm reassured by the fact that a lot of the work I've done over the last, however many years has been in the right sort of directions. Um, and I've definitely got better at processing those feelings and working with them and, and doing some positive stuff. And then this idea of contracting, I think is something that I, I think I have done, but not done consciously. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm mm-hmm. sure many other people have like it's it's a, it's an element of self-talk, I guess, like what's going to yeah. happen on this trail. How am I going to approach that? So I think maybe making that a more active part of how I operate in circumstances where I'm scared or there are, you know, parts of the trail that I'm not, not totally comfortable with. And then I like, I do like the idea of that conversation with a, with a group as well. Like I've never, we've never actively had that in any of the groups that I ride with. Um, yeah. so I think that's quite, I mean, it would just be interesting, right. To hear other people's experiences. Yeah, yeah. Cause I think we all generally off. I mean, it's maybe a, A British thing I don't know how well it translates but we often suffer in silence yeah yeah and alone rather than sharing like I'm scared of this because or I feel Mm. like this because and these things help me and these things don't so I think that's pretty interesting
1: yeah and you know it can be it can be liberating to do that I think um you know the evidence generally suggests it's quite positive to share that with your group that you're riding with actually to kind of talk about things like that and like I said it, it doesn't have to be like a (laughs) <laughs> like a heavy emotional conversation, it can actually be quite fun to do that. Like one thing I, I sometimes get groups to do is like a, a what I call like a, a traffic light a traffic light list. Uh, sorry, a traffic light list. Uh-huh. So it's like, what's the one green thing? If if you want to get the best out of me, this is what I what you need me what you um I need you to do. If I'm struggling, this is when I'm in the amber zone. This is what I need you to do as a as a as a member of my writing group and the one thing you must never do the red light is this yeah and like you can just go through like a fun exercise with a group where people share that and it, it might be quite humorous but it, it does it does it's quite good to to share that with um with your group um from both a performance point of view and a well-being point of view and and one thing i just wanted to say chris you, you know it's evident that in the conversation today you actually embrace quite a lot of these principles anyway and um you know not all riders will be like that necessarily but one one thing that we do know is that athletes and people who've tend to experience who have who have experienced some adversity in their sport you know like you've you've spoken about breaking your femur you learn lessons from that and that you know i suppose that's just a, a healthy reminder for people is that when you experience injury or adversity whether that's through mountain biking or life you will learn lessons from that and it will make you a better rider, a better person. It will make your relationship with things like fear and with failure more healthy. Um, so there are benefits to setbacks, even though
0: it doesn't always seem like it in the heat of the moment. For sure. I think you can probably see that in some of the top level elite sport as well. Like these These waves of performance and consistency often come after a rough season or a big injury mm. or something that just makes a rider think differently or assess something or bring in mm, a different mm. element into their support structure or whatever it happens to be like, yeah i think they don't just come from nowhere often so progress yeah. can be made off the back of setbacks for sure
1: yeah we i sometimes ask riders or athletes um what is it about this low point that's going to make you the rider you are in the future you know, there, there's a lesson to be gained from this, whether it's smarter thinking or, or getting more in touch with the social side of mountain biking, there is something positive to get from this low point. For sure.
0: Yeah, definitely. Is there any, I mean, you mentioned the chimp paradox by Steven Peters, which is definitely an interesting read. Are there Mm. any other like books on this topic that you've found particularly useful any recommended reading for people?
1: Yeah. So, um, Every every psychologist and you know works with a different model, and, and different athletes will respond better to different things. But um, there is a, a book I quite like, which is not it's not really sport oriented, but it contains a lot of the principles that we've spoken about today, um, and it's really applicable to other areas of life as well. It's called The Happiness Trap
0: mm-hmm.
1: by Russ Harris. Um, okay. Very very a very short digestible book, and it just teaches you very nice practical strategies about how you can be more present and not be such such a victim of the amygdala hijack on a day-to-day basis. Um, So, yeah, I I really like that one. And um, I would just encourage people to have a look at, there's a lot of good sports psychology resources online. There's a website called Sporting Bounce that will direct you to different sports psychologists' websites. And um, there's lots of, there's even apps that will help you through this, you know, with this sort of stuff. There's like the Smarter Thinking Project, which was developed by a group of um, a group of researchers in the UK, and um, they've developed an app, an app called, I think, well, Think Smarter um, or something like that. And um, yeah, um, reach out to the sports psychology community. We're we're far more accessible, and we all love sport than than that maybe the stereotype of us is. Um, yeah,
0: <laughs> good stuff, man. Well, it's been yeah super interesting and definitely clicked a few things in my brain through the conversation i hope other people find things to take away from it i think there's loads of good stuff there so yeah thanks for thanks for getting in touch thanks for taking the time for a sit down um and maybe we'll do a follow-up at at some point in the future
1: that would be great see you on the trail chris thanks for the conversation nice one cheers chris bye-bye all
0: right that's it for this episode with chris i really hope you've enjoyed listening and found it useful too a massive thank you to Magura for supporting this episode of the show. The Magura MT7 Pros are genuinely the best brakes I've ever used, and what's more, you can use the Magura, customize your brake options to get the perfect setup for you when it comes to performance, aesthetics, and ergonomics. Head over to magura.com to check them out. The latest range of awesome clothing from Layout is available now over at layout.com. That's L E A T T.com. I've been testing it this year and there have been a few standout items for me. Today I talked about the Trail 1.0 jacket, which has become a staple in my pack as the perfect small lightweight jacket to get you out of trouble. If there's an unexpected shower or if the temperature drops a little lower than you expected, this is the one for you. Head over to layout.com to check out the entire range. Here's a few other links that might be useful to you too downtimepodcast.com forward slash subscribe so you don't miss an episode forward slash shop to support the show by getting yourself some merch and forward slash ep if you'd like to get your hands on copies of our lovely print project downtime ep as always spread the word and make sure as many people as possible are listening that's it for today we're going to have another awesome episode coming up really soon but until next time get out and ride